Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Thomas Dija, the author of New York, New York, New York Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. This is his sixth book. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Dija. Thank you for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. New York, New York. It's my, fa- my native city, and I'll likely always consider it my home city, no matter how long it's been since I've lived there. It's the city that has it all. Wealth, poverty, diversity of race, origin, shacks, skyscrapers, schools, illiteracy, baseball, bridges, tunnels, parks, concrete, water, sand, trains, cabs, buses, and cars, and lots of cars. But it also has history, and lots of that too. Thomas Dija argues that to know New York is to know the last 40 years of what Jay-Z and many others call the greatest city in the world. Dija breaks those decades into four eras, Renaissance, Reconsideration, Reformation, Reimagination. But before we get into all that, I want to ask, New York, New York, so nice they named it twice. So why does the title of your book have three New Yorks? New York, New York, New York. (laughs) You know, a couple levels. One is one of of the heroes of the book is a guy named Holly White, who was an urbanist, uh, a thinker, who was one of the people who was um, involved in the whole kind of idea of coming back to the city in the 50s and 60s. And he was an early supporter of Jane Jacobs and helped get her book, Death and Life of the American City, off the ground. So he was very important in working with um, New York and the Rockefellers and sort of getting a lot of ideas in. And he always believed that what um, cities exist to help uh, facilitate the face-to-face exchange between people. He really believed that people were the answer to fixing New York. And so he was once asked, what are your three favorite American cities? And he said, New York, New York, New York. So it was a tribute to Holly White, but also a tribute to um, the kind of the passion that people have for the place that you're, you know, just speaking to right now as, as a New York native. Um, you know, and then there's also a kind of structural one um, in, in that for me, the book is kind of is de- broken into really three parts. There's the kind of Koch Dinkin period. Um, there's the, uh, I mean, yeah, Koch Dinkins and then the Rudy period, the Reformation, and then the reimagination under Bloomberg. So for me, the book is kind of these three evolutions of New York over this time where it's still the same city, but there are these profound changes that take place that really make the city quite different from the one before, but it's still New York, you know, and I try to come up with how is this, you know, it wasn't an overnight change. People always, I moved there in 1980 and I think of it before and after and people who come in 1990 think of it as before and after and everybody has the before and after in the city and for me, it really is this question of, of evolution. And that was how I kind of wrapped my head structurally around the book and all the changes that take place in it. Whenever I go back to New York, um, and I used to live there, for people who don't know who listen, I used to live there. Uh, I, I grew up there, and I lived there until I was you know, technically 22 years old. But once you leave for college at 18, you're, the time you, know. you spend there starts to change significantly. Um, 
I always have this feeling, and New York is a city that you feel. You feel it, and I always can feel it. I always have this moment when I get back to New York after a long time off where I'm finally sitting on the subway. Um, and maybe that's representative of this time where New York suddenly became safe again, and you talk about that in the book. But um, I always have this, this feel of what it's like to actually be there and to be taking part in this grand experiment that is New York that goes on and on for the generations. Um, but feel is important in this book. Uh, your bo your yeah. book opens on Valentine's Day, February 14th. What could be more feeling than that? Uh, February 14th, 1978. That day is called I Love New York Day. But right. you say there was lots to be fearful of, not to necessarily be proud of. And so there's this PR campaign that's trying to wind its way through New Yorkers' hearts. Um, just as an example, there had been 63,000 fires in the South Bronx the right. last two years. You're right. The trains were filthy. There was a mass murderer on the loose or two, maybe, if you watch right. the new documentary. Uh, new York's reputation was so bad that the president visited a garbage-filled street just to see it for himself. So how did that city, after all the hope of the post-World War II era, become that, a place of broken glass and broken promises? Right. I mean, there's so many things that go into it, and that's kind of the prelude of the book. But what, what forces that moment is, you know, what we call the fiscal crisis, really, when the city, uh, over the course of, you know, seven or eight years, the economy goes south, and the city ends up in a situation where it is borrowing much more money that can pay back. Now, the fact is, the city always has to borrow money in order to pay its bills through the, you know, through the course of the year. The taxes come a couple times a year, but there are bills to pay every month, right? So the city is always working with banks in order to do this. But in the mid-70s, when Beam is mayor, um, it, it's so acute. Uh, and, you know, the, the country's coming off of the oil crisis and all the things spinning off from there, um, high inflation. We have stagflation, where we have high unemployment and high inflation, which isn't supposed to happen, strictly speaking. So it, it's a time of real serious national dis dissolution as well. And so um, the bankers, you know, and, and a lot of the sort of politicians of a certain stripe take this opportunity, really, to um, force the city into really stripping down, um, cutting jobs, cutting back as opposed to spending, to really introducing one of the first austerity programs that we see. Um, and, you know, the idea that the, everyone felt that New York would be able to pay back those loans, you know, on a usual sense, but they took advantage of choice to do this, to kind of bring the hammer down. And so the city was left with, at times, zero capital budget, had no money to spend on things. And so that was just one part of this storm um, of, of the city kind of spinning out of control. A lot of social things were also going on, certainly, in, in regards to crime. Um, but overall, there was a sense, I'm, I moved there in 1978, of, of kind of having to survive the city. You know, and there's a, a sociologist, Durkheim, uses the word anomie. It's like where everybody in the city is just sort of at war with each other. You know, and the bind, the kind of the things that hold people together in the city were really frayed. And I just, as I said, I remember that being a time of trying to survive. And so one of the stories of this book is this long effort to help people really learn how to live in the city. And in crime is one part of it, certainly. But, you know, the pooper scooper law was an important part of it, too. The sense of how do we use public space and how do we use public space as a way to, to create what, what Olmsted, Frederick Law Olmsted, one of the guys who designed Central Park, called commonplace civilization. How do we just live together in a democracy? 
And so there's a lot of people in the city who, who really work towards this of how do we gain not control of the streets. I mean, that's something that Giuliani does later and takes some of these, I think, really good, important ideas and kind of weaponizes them and turns them into how do we control the streets, which as opposed to saying, how do we figure out how we want to use the streets together and, and parks and public space and stuff? So, you know, that, that's kind of the arc of the story. The city had fallen into an incredibly dark place. And um, this whole book really is a push to see, kind of ask how these changes came about. Because anybody who was in New York, you know, I started the book in 2013 at the end of Bloomberg, seemed like it was the, you know, fabulous place, surpluses in the treasury, you know, more park space than it ever had. Everything was looking really pretty remarkable, actually. I think we weren't noticing the inequities, a lot of the things that the pandemic have shown us, but it seemed like a remarkable moment. Um, but there were things that had gone wrong. So I wanted to get in there and ask who made the changes, where did these kind of changes come from, and not just in terms of policy, but in culture and, and how we lived in the city as well. You mentioned the word who, who made these kinds of changes. Right. And I want to ask about Robert Moses. Before we start on our 40-year jaunt from 1978 on, I do yeah, want to ask about Robert Moses. Right? I, I have to ask about him because um, – the, the power broker is kind of where all New York studies, maybe until your book, but it's kind of where, where all New York studies begin. Um, and I've read the power broker. I read it in college yeah. and I go back to it from time to time. Um, and I've experienced the way Carroll writes, New York's highway sealed us off from the water, the way his parks were built in mostly the wrong places, the way the cross Bronx and bridges made New York undrivable and made it polluted. What did you find in your studies as to how he impacted the Big Apple? Did, did he truly contribute to the fall of New York, which is Robert Caro's main thesis? Right. I mean, you know, fall is such a, you know, I avoid words like triumph and, and fall and things like that, you know, because we're also, a lot of what Moses did also made the city possible. You know, when, when he starts, when with the Triborough Bridge, um, the city's still pretty young as, as a combination of all five boroughs, right? They've only been together since 1898. The city's only existed, like, you know, if you look back now, that means since the 90s, right? It's only been one New York. And so it, by providing those roads and that bridge, it really does make it possible for the city to function much more together. And through the bonding and the kind of complicated financial aspects of it, pulls out an enormous amount of money out of this that he then uses to continue this work. Now, the choice he makes to push the city towards cars and really kind of getting away from railroad and other kind of infrastructure that I think would have made more sense in a long-term way, that's absolutely right. Were an enormous amount of his policies and road building and park building racist at their core? Absolutely. You know, there's no way to get around that. I mean, he's pretty, that, that is in the record there, and he pretty much says it at times. So, you know, it, he is one, to, but to say that that was, the city was at some pinnacle and then he destroyed it is, you know, uh, you can say that on certain aspects, but in whole, there's a, there is an enormous amount that he did. And there's been a certain kind of pushback against that in the last 15 or so years. So I think we're getting to a slightly more measured vision of, of what Moses did as a, a city maker, you know, and a lot of when you, I look around now and there's a lot of discussion in New York and I think a lot of cities you know, about Yimbyism, 
yes in my backyard and people saying <laughs> we want more density right we need to build more buildings we need to get rid of low zoned areas where it's single housing you know and we have to build more houses you know and i really believe we need more housing but that push to just build more big big buildings smells to me a little moses like you know i mean it is really taking apart and ignoring all the other issues around a city taking you know really ignoring the organic things about a city and just saying we're this one thing is the most important thing and we're going to just tear up the city in order to do it and i think we have to be very very wary of a kind of neo moses attitude um when it comes to to housing neo moses neo moses yeah, exactly. let's, let's enter like, that into literally just got that thought but that you know i think it's kind of true that that, that a one that one subject on you know making everything based on one issue is i think always scary and, and if anyone they, if anyone ever says neo about you you may not have had the best impact <laughs> lots of bad neos out there lots um, of, listen i wrote an entire book and i did not i i it was an actual goal of mine to not use the word neoliberalism in this book so let that be if it's there it was like parts per million you know, you'll be safe it's right uh Ed Koch, that's yep. your first kind of hero in the book. Um, and I know you want to stay away from heroes and all that, but, yeah. but Ed Koch is the first um, figure this book kind of turns on. And I certainly remember Ed Koch as mayor, maybe a little bit. He left office, I guess I was about seven or eight, but I remember my parents talking about him. And I think we saw him once. And um, You say Ed Koch could be as hard-headed and offensive um, as he could be a fine retail politician with a knack for management and managing the media, even if it meant right. giving bad news. How did he seize this moment, the I love New York moment, right. and make it so in practice? Right. I mean, he really, he was an outsider. You know, he was an outsider in a personal way. When he came up in the village as a Democrat, he was an outsider. He would run against the Democrats as much as the Republicans. He always was. So he always positioned himself uh, against the establishment, you know, and for better and for worse. Um, and so in New York, that gave him a kind of independence. Um, Kerry's guy, Governor Kerry, was supporting Mario Cuomo. And so it was a big surprise that Koch was an underdog who just showed up and won, and they felt that they could control Koch. And instead, he really tapped into a, a sense of pride and, and a feeling that people really wanted this the fiscal crisis. And so when we're talking about 78, when he starts in that I Love New York Day, the city has come through a really bad spot. They've gotten all this federal money, but things are still bad. And basically all, all the possible loans have been loaned. The state doesn't have any more money. The federal government isn't going to be giving any more money. Like it's, it's kind of, this is it. And Koch is able to drag the city forward and, and create a new attitude, draw people back in and create a a much more positive take on New York. Now, the downside of, of Koch is that, um, you know, I think he drove a very racial wedge into it. Part of the sense that he brought was that, well, okay, now we're in charge. And by we, it meant, um, you know, basically white New Yorkers. It meant we. <laughs> you know, and so he, you know, it's one of the things that's really important to notice is that the Koch administration was almost entirely free of African-Americans um, outside of Gordon Davis, who really is one of the heroes of this book in, in my mind, who was his parks commissioner. Um, there were positions in the city government that were kind of traditionally held for African-Americans, just as kind of any, any power sharing agreement, right? And that's all gone. And that's gone for a long time. And there's something 
that's important to keep in mind in this book is that this era was in fact a almost exceptional in the way that it had taken power away from people of color in New York. And so a lot of the push of it is about those communities trying to find their place in the city again, even after it had existed before and had been kind of pulled back as part of the undertone of this new New York. So, you know, that was the the negative, I think the most negative thing about Koch to his, you know, in his defense, late in his life, he really does speak out about his mistakes and, you know, it airs his regrets quite much and goes to the movies with Al Sharpton and, and kind of tries to make it up in a way. But it, it's, it's late for history. Um, you know, I think the other great thing he did, which is a massive legacy, was the housing initiative that he started with, with Mario Cuomo, who was governor at that point, where they just threw everything at housing, you know, and public, private, community organizers, the Rockefellers, just any idea. And some of them were, you know, fascinating and, and new. And there was a, a moment of all kinds of resources. It was a kind of big thinking about a big problem. And when we talk about crime going down later on under Giuliani, a, a lot of that happens in my mind because of these neighborhoods that are recreated, that are stitched together again. Um, new immigrant populations come and they really take to the new housing that grows out of this, of rehabbing buildings and putting people back in them. And so, again, crime, you know, policing was one part of that, but rebuilding neighborhoods under Koch's uh, housing initiative, I think, was, was just basic to that. This episode is more autobiographical than just about any other episode we've done because this covers the 40 years that I've been alive in the city that I consider that will always be my native city. Um, so I want to tell you my first memories of New York. My first memories of New York beyond just our little apartment with my parents um, are from the window of a school bus um, towards the end of the Koch era, um, 98 to 1990. I took it from our neighborhood in Van Cortland Park every day to Spanish Harlem, where I went to elementary school. I remember seeing uh, the tough streets. I remember seeing the graffiti. Uh, the Crack is Whack playground was a distinctive, yep. is a distinctive memory for me right along the FDR. Um, uh, and let's face it, I also remember the crack. <laughs> I remember right, my exactly. dad, yep. you know, I remember my dad not wanting to be on the subway too late. Mm -hmm. How did drugs, crime, AIDS, how do those things fester? And was it because of the city administration, because of Koch? Um, or was it dictated by national winds, by other things going on in the country that were led by Reaganomics? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think I, I could blame, you know, each of these are kind of separate threads. You know, AIDS happened, obviously Ed Koch didn't create AIDS. The biggest issue with Ed Koch and AIDS is um, the question as to whether the city and whether Koch could have done more faster. You know, and there's still some controversy. Some of the people who have given me some pushback have been people who were in the Koch administration who felt that, um, in fact, they'd done a lot. I, I, I would question that. The record shows that Koch did not terribly much. There are people in the administration who did great things, who pushed hard on it. But he was as concerned with hanging out with the arch, you know, uh, with Cardinal, um, uh, God, what was his name again? I forgot. O'Connor? Yes, oh, before you know, O'Connor. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and so he was very, um, he did not go full bore on it for a long time. And so that is, I think, the, the slam on him there. You know, you can't, obviously, and by the same token, he didn't create crack, you know. I mean, these things were products of a culture that grew up under the city in that time. 
where the city really said business had always been a part of New York. You know, making money has always been a part of New York and still is. But under the, after, during the fiscal crisis, the need for money, the need for tax revenue, the need to bring the city out of the fiscal crisis put the business community more important than anything else. And that, and really, that, the focus of the city became business to a degree that it had never been before. You know, that's hard for us to think about now, 40 years later, we take it for granted. But the business community was one of the stakeholders of the city, as opposed to the dictator of what happens in the city. And it's understandable, you know, the sense of needing to pay the bills, we're going to let that happen. And so that sense of money, that 80 cents, the, you know, Wall Street takes off. Wall Street up until this point under Reagan, and you know, up until Reagan, had been this kind of sleepy 10 to 4 job, right? It's where old people put their money into the stock market to get their 1%, like nothing happened. And then it gets deregulated and the bond market comes back. Exactly. And it just explodes, right? And so suddenly money flies back into the system. And 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 all of that adds to, I, I would say crack was a, a symptom, you know, of this kind of growing inequality where suddenly a bunch of people are making a ton of money. And there's a bunch of people who aren't catching up and drugs are injected into the system from however we want to find out where crack begins, you know, and these problems begin to really fester between race and inequality, poverty, greed, you know, and then we get to the late 80s, the last years of Koch, and these things have really become enormous civic problems um, for New York. And it's under Dinkins, who inherits them all. And in fact, you know, those are the years of peak crack and peak crime and peak AIDS. And under Dinkins, crime goes down in every category, in every precinct from the beginning of his years in City Hall. You know, we tend to look at that and Giuliani ran against that as, you know, the city's out of control. The fact is crime was already going down not super fast, you know, but it was already trending down. He kind of came into, he just walked into a wave of what had really washed Koch out of office by that point. And that was my next question. What was happening in those years in New York, uh, the Dinkins years, 1990 to 1993? Many argue that, um, the, as you do, that the, crime, the drop in crime started under David Dinkins, and there are many books that uh, show that that, to be, that that is the case. Um, Rudy Giuliani ends up taking and getting the yeah. credit for it. But right. what was happening in those years, 1990 to 1993, and why was the city on a footing where it was ready and able to ride the national winds of dropping crime and rising urban renewal? Right. I mean, it's, no one is, you can, it's hard to tell exactly how that crazy, not crazy, but how this national crime drop happened, you know. And I think it speaks to a lot of theories that crime functions in in a kind of viral way um you know you can't key it directly to poverty because certainly a same number of people are poor if not more under giuliani than they are you know there's no real clear correlation or a causation between poverty and crime you can find anywhere so trying to find exactly what happened there are all kinds of theories, you know, was it part of, was it lead paint and getting rid of lead paint? Was it legalized abortion? All of these things, you know, no one can hang it exactly on there. And I, in one of my chapters on crime under Giuliani, kind of try to take it all apart and not even say what the percentage is, but these are all really possible and I would say probable things that are, um, 
you know, why crime went down. And then under Bratton as police commissioner under Giuliani, the city was able to kind of drive it down under with a different kind of policing that went in there. But, you know, the Dinkins years were all about making a lot of those things possible. You know, Times Square, the beginning of change in Times Square starts under Dinkins. Giuliani forces Disney to sign it kind of publicly and do all this kind of big public, oh, look what I magically did my first month in office. But it was all teed up before him, the whole rethinking of it, the deal with Disney was all in place before. Um, Dinkins, after the horrifying murder of Brian Watson in his first year, um, a visitor to the US Open, that was when the first real kind of shakeup at uh, One Police Plaza started, but it was also what created the uh, Safe Streets, Safe Kids bill, a really huge anti-crime bill that provided the money for the cops that then Giuliani had on the streets. You know, he, a lot of those things began, I compare it to, you know, Buck Showalter creating the Yankees and then Joe Torre taking right. him over and, and making him champs. You know, I mean, that is what, to a certain degree, that's what happened. A lot of these things were set up that then Giuliani gets to take credit for. And, you know, Dinkins, his real biggest problem ultimately was that he never really wanted the job. You know, these other people at some point were driven by the idea of being mayor, at least, you know, in charge of this kind of thing. And Dinkins out of the, the kind of group of four great Harlem politicians of Wrangell and, and uh, Patterson and Sutton and, uh, and, and Dinkins, he was the least likely, you know, he kind of fell to him. And so he said many times, I, I really never wanted this job. And, and he was not able to really communicate the sense of, of leadership and um, that the city needed at a very difficult time. He, he gravity and integrity, his progressiveness and his care for people is unquestioned, but he could not really express what was happening that was good. And so the city felt a lot more out of control than maybe it even was. Mm -hmm. And so when Giuliani comes along and is promising, um, you know, this kind of one city, one standard kind of thing, a kind of fight to against multiculturalism, which is a big national thing that's happening at the time, the culture wars, um, New Yorkers really jump on it. I remember the Giuliani years for um, three primary reasons. Um, one, it was a time where it was, and you, though I love the way you put it in the book. You say, and then it happened. Yeah, <laughs> suddenly yeah, people felt like, like that. that. I mean, I remember being out once with my wife late at night and thinking, wow, it's, it's two o'clock in the morning and we're out here and I'm not thinking at all about crime. And so fear of crime is as big a deal as crime itself, if not more so. Go ahead. Sorry, I jumped yeah, in. no, it, because I, I mean, I was a benefit. You know, I was a benefit uh, of that, a beneficiary of that. I, right as my teenage years ramped up, I could walk around and do what we wanted to do to explore right. the city. It was great. But I remember the the um, it was suddenly safe to ride the subway and walk around in Manhattan late at night. Two, um, the years were marked by violent racial conflict, particularly over police shootings. Yep. Foreshadowing what the nation would eventually learn about in another fifteen years. But these were. You know, these were very brutal clashes over, you know, over, um, you know, what it means to be African-American right. and what it means to be a police officer and, and how these clashes have continued to persist. Um, but I, I've been to the Amadou Diallo vestibule. I've looked at it. I've seen the bullet holes right. there. I don't know if they're still there, but I have been there. And three, there were these bitter fights over education um, and funding. Grade, right. grade Rudy, if you can, pre 9-11, 
what was his impact? Just keep it to pre-9-11. What was his yeah, impact? Yeah. Right. I mean, originally, he walked in the door bringing, um, you know, a, a sense of, of competence that, like I said, that sense of leadership and control that people found um, at least settling after, you know, Central Park Five and these kind of, you know, this era of, of, of just Crown Heights riots, a sense of, of chaos, which may or may not have been completely true, but it's felt that way, the squeegee men, all that kind of thing. And so Rudy comes in and, and like I said, a lot of things start to dovetail, you know, the new Natural History Museum, the new, all kinds of things are new and cleaner and um, the subways are better, not because of Rudy, because Bill Bratton had been subway transit police commissioner under Dinkins, you know, so a lot of the changes that happen above ground are things that had started happening below ground in the subways when he was running the transit police. So it was a kind of move up there again. So Giuliani seems like he's a white hat guy because he was in those late 80s years when the city was really after Black Monday and, and the city was kind of at one of its peaks of, of just noxious greed, right? Um, Rudy was a white hat guy. Like he broke the mafia, the pizza connection. He was the guy who, um, you know, takes down Leona Helmsley. And I mean, he's just, he goes after um, Wall Street in a way that no one ever had and, and probably hasn't ever done after that either. And so in a lot of people's minds, he was, you know, uh, he did have a white hat, except the problem is that when he ran the first time against Dinkins, instead of, he thought he was going to run against Koch. And so he was going to be kind of this, fusion reform candidate like uh, LaGuardia, you know, or like a Lindsay who was a Republican, right? But instead he ends up fighting, fighting, he's going to be going against Dinkins. And instead of still being a reformer, because Dinkins was a pretty machine guy, you know, he was a supporter of a lot of real estate development. He was no, he might've had progressive uh, policies in certain ways, but he was very much you know, a, a machine politician with some dirt on him. He had had tax problems and stuff like that. But instead, Giuliani makes the really puzzling political choice to run a, a pretty racial campaign against Dinkins. And, and to, instead of tacking left, he tacks right. And the question with Giuliani in all these years in Chicago, in Chicago, in New York, is how much he's an opportunist. You know, he starts as a Kennedy Democrat in college, and he sort of just becomes more conservative as it gets him better jobs. And we see this as a, you know, it's a kind of crazy mistake that he makes. So he comes in this, you know, having one now running against him. The idea that New Yorkers, progressive New Yorkers, just all run to him and vote for him secretly in the ballot box, the numbers don't really bear that up actually. Um, it's more about turnout. You know, the black turnout was much lower than it was. But across the board, whether you're talking about the Upper West Side or, you know, Jamaica or Hollis and stuff, the percentages were pretty much the same. The turnout was just lower. And Mario Cuomo had put a referendum on, on Staten Island secession on the ballot. And so um, there was an enormous turnout in Staten Island, which is, you know, heavily Republican, heavily Giuliani. And so that was really his um, kind of margin for victory. So Giuliani came in as something new and and people saw it as something new and kind of putting control and bringing the city back and there was a sense of that but in the middle at the beginning of his second term he really begins to run against the city and that sense of of creating civility 
you know, people are supposed to behave certain ways. And that's just not New Yorkers, you know, that's just that. And the, the, the kind of weaponization of a lot of things I was talking about before, about how do we live together in the city become now about order, how you have to behave a certain yeah. way. There, there, was always this de- there was always this debate about what's okay. Is exactly. it okay to have this kind of art? Is it okay to be doing this sort of thing in the subways? Is this okay? Right. And New York is like, you know, yeah, because it's, it's all okay. New York, you know, I mean, oh, okay. it, it's, you know, and so that, that introduced, I think, a very uh, dangerous, you took some great ideas and weaponized them. And by the end, um, New Yorkers were by 9-11, and I remember that day quite well, you know, people were really ready for him to go. He'd had this bizarre few months where he had announced that he was divorcing his wife on television without her knowing it. Then he has prostate cancer and he see, I mean, it was just a, 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 a personally embarrassing thing that kind of presaged his, his ability to stand in front of a camera and, and say almost anything with no shame was certainly something he was able to do, um, you know, back in 2000. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised. Um, you mentioned it, so let's get into it. Um, there was, uh, there's a dividing line, not only um, in my life, uh, because 9-11 happened literally two weeks after I went away to college. Right. Um, and I never moved back to the same city again. It, was, it would never be the same place. Right. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was two weeks from going to college, so we're talking mid-August of 2001. It was a beautiful night. A friend and I decided to get on the Staten Island ferry, like almost a trip that you would do when you were five years old, and you right. know your parents would show you this amazing ferry. And coming back on the round trip um, into the South Ferry Terminal, we just, my friend and I, we just couldn't believe how the World Trade Center looked and the way it kind of contributed to the skyline. It was glimmering. It's tall, not quite symmetrical because of the radio tower on one of them. They're odd, but also oddly helpful contributors to this most beautiful urban skyline that there could ever be. A city of fascinating looking buildings produce these things. Just kind of strange that they would be there, these very symmetrical square things in this incredible art deco city. Um, By the time 9-11 happened, I was in Ithaca. And by the time I returned to New York, maybe mid-October, the city that I grew up in was gone. It was, it just felt different. And I always felt odd that I wasn't there on that day. Um, Thoughts of the pit will always, I was once in a building and I looked straight down into it will always make me well up with tears. So we always ask, where were you on 9-11? I want to ask, where was New York on 9-10 and where was it on 9-12? And I I just, I do want to say that your observation that, this was the first time that the city stopped to mourn its victims collectively was fascinating to me because there were a number of other times that could have happened, but right. didn't, but nine 11 right. is when it, it happened. So yeah, anyway, nine ten versus nine twelve. It ended. Well, nine ten was, we were ready to move on. You know, I mean, everyone was really ready to get past Rudy. There was a big, heavy sigh. And, you know, I wouldn't say there was a kind of optimism, but there was a certain, let's let's get moving on to the next thing kind of mindset going on. And what happened after that was, I think, a really unique period. Um, you know, I had little kids at that point, and it was this kind of period of, of unique grace. You know, the writer Rebecca Solnit calls them paradise utopias. And there was just a sense of, of infinite kindness among people. And 
it's it, when those of us who are around now and facing COVID and the pandemic, what's made this so acutely painful and so bizarre is that we can't be together. We couldn't, God knows, right now, every, <laughs> the doors are open, folks. But, um, you know, up until now, the, the, the horror of not being able to with, be with people. And after 9-11, New Yorkers really found each other. And I think even more than anything they did in the, the, the kind of ballot box or the, the you know, voting booth, they went back to those ideas of creating a commonplace civilization. They went back to each other. And the city was, was in mourning, but so together and united in very fundamental ways. It was a unique time to be there. You know, you just went out in the street and everyone was literally kind to each other in a way I can't describe, you know. And that, I think, did, to a certain degree, set the tone for what was ahead for Bloomberg. Everybody was ready for somebody who came in as this, technocrat and he made all the right noises right away you know and reaching out to the black community other communities of color and sort of getting past that let's just let's just fine we're going to try it this guy's way and and it felt really good for a while you know i mean people didn't like him um at all at the beginning because of his sense of and maybe never ever truly did because of his um i think classist billionaire kind of position but they did recognize that a lot of things did work better at the beginning, after the first year. And um, there was a way of looking at the city that was, at least initially, a little post-racial. Um, you know, by the end, we found out that that was definitely not happening. And that stop and frisk below all the wonderful things that were being built all over the city was being built on a lot of, of terror for people in other parts of the city that was easy to not pay attention to. And a lot of people were being left behind. But, you know, 9-12 really was about New Yorkers being ready for something new and being ready to think harder and um, think new thoughts about New York fundamentally. 20 years is a lot of time. It's, it's enough time to look back and take stock. Yeah. Where is 9-11 now as we approach its 20-year anniversary? Yeah. Um, where is 9-11 now in our collective memory as New Yorkers? I mean, it's when you really look at the, you know, what is it? Something almost 20,000 New Yorkers have died of COVID in the year, you know, um, and something like, you know, and this is not to diminish a, a horror, but you know, the, the, the violence of 9-11 made it remarkable, but the violence on the city and to the people of the city by the pandemic have, have um, I think, on a very day-to-day -day level and basic level, kind of, um, you know, overshadowed that fundamentally. Um, you know, we really have a lot more to get out of. So I think to some degree, um, some of the horror of 9-11 has been, kind of been subsumed by the pandemic. I mean, this has just had so much of a much more profound impact on people's lives. I mean, you know, 9-11, I was on the Upper West Side and, you know, my office was down on, on Park Row and happily I wasn't in that day. So, I mean, you could, a lot of people went on living their lives in New York without really having an impact from 9-11. And that's just the fact of it. You know, there are parts of the city that that moved on without a real change in their lives. And I don't think there's anybody who can say that in New York City, that over the last year, their lives weren't changed by COVID. So I think what we have not been able to do, which we were able to do, is what you're talking about, grief. I mean, I think that 9-11 was a kind of outpouring of that grief for that we had for all the thousands that we lost to AIDS 
to the thousands that we lost to crack, to the thousands that we lost to crime, some sense of grief. And I don't think we've gotten there yet. You know, I don't, maybe we've had it this whole year, but somehow we're going to have to take a pause before we truly move ahead and, and have that. But right now it's important to get out there and enjoy ourselves in a way that we haven't in a year, but we're going to need to kind of take stock at some point. How do you process um, the change in the type of people who can live in New York? Um, I've got friends. I've got a, my sister is going to be leaving. Um, there's, you know, the, the amount of money it costs is extraordinary. The amount of um, the, the, the brutality of the commute. And I, I use the term brutality is uh, figuratively, but there's a uh, transportation is very difficult. It costs a lot of money. Um, housing is not particularly convenient or useful. Um, how does, uh, I'm sorry. Or affordable. I mean, that's or, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just brutal. Um, how, how do we look at the future here? What does New York need to do to keep its people from leaving it? Well, I, you know, I think one of the things that happened through the Giuliani and into the Bloomberg years, the fact that the city did become so much more easy to live in. Living in the city, the city that you grew up in as a kid, was a very active venture. You know, you lived in your neighborhood. And really the definition of gentrification is people moving onto a place. They kind of come to a place and, and impose their idea of what the economy should look like, what the culture should look like, what life should look like here. I mean, I think of the you know, a story of, of a, a woman moving into a neighborhood uptown, like in Washington Heights, which for years had had kind of weekend party in Riverside Park that was kind of messy and loud, but it was where people spent their Sunday afternoons partying. And for years, decades, and the woman moves in there, and then like the, the first day she's calling the police saying there's this loud party out my window, you know, and something has to be done to stop this. And, you know, that is to me just such a, a, a that is the definition of, of gentrification. So what we stopped doing was living with each other after 9-11. A lot of ways we were moving on top of each other and looking at the city as a place that is here to take care of our needs, you know? And that's not always the way when we look back that, um, you know, and I mean our comforts, not our needs. I mean, in the days when there was free college and free hospitals, that's when we're talking about our needs, but we're talking about really convenient luxury shopping as our desires, you know? So the fact that the city made life so much easier for many people, if those people don't necessarily want to participate in the city the same way, if they don't want to live around certain kinds of people, if they don't, if you know, if we look at the problem of homelessness as opposed to why these people are homeless, um, I'd be happy to have some people come in who maybe want to think about it in those terms. You know, I, I think a city is an activity. How you live in the city needs to be an active thing, not based on your convenience and pleasure. And, and I think there's still a lot of people who, are, who see New York as an enormous opportunity to enjoy a unique kind of life. So all you're saying is true, the brutality, the, the commute, all these things. I don't, I don't disagree with it. You know, I don't yeah. disagree with it. it. It is there and these are problems that can be worked on and that's the job of not just government, but of New Yorkers every day. That's one of the themes of this book is that this city wasn't just forced on us. People did things. Single individual New Yorkers said something needs to change and throughout the book, there are people who did that. And so a lot of these issues are still um, you know, it, confrontable by individual New Yorkers, but that means not just leaning back and saying, how is my life easier now? It's how can I make it a little harder? How can I try to fix this thing? New York City 
is a city of mayors. It's the best job in politics. It's the worst job in politics. It's definitely not the easiest, but it probably is the hardest job in politics. Um, Why is New York a city of mayors? And um, I'll also ask you, why is it a terminal office? No one ever goes on to do anything else. Well, I mean, you know, New York, if it was a country, it'd be a pretty big country. I mean, it's, it has like the, the, the kind of ecosphere of, of, of what is involved in city politics is so complicated and so rich that, you know, you can make a pretty good living and, and a pretty fascinating life by just dealing within New York politics. So, um, yeah, nobody's ever leapt ahead onto governor. Isn't that incredible? I mean, they've never been a governor, a senator, or a, a, a president. Never. No, and they've I mean, all thought is, about it. But this is a barroom question, though, is how many mayors of any city have gone on for national politics? I mean, I know we, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it is, I'm trying to think of a, of a mayor of Los Angeles, a mayor of Chicago. You know, mayor is a, a fascinating yeah. job because it still keeps a serious retail level. You really do need to be able to, it's a little bit like being on your co-op board. You know, you need to be able to say hello to people in the elevator. Um, and, and I don't know, I just, I, I think that's one of the, might be part of the nature of being a mayor, but in the context of New York, uh, it, it is so, um, it, it's, it's its own rich, rich world, you know? And so I, I think people are probably shocked by then. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's brutal. You got to deal with a lot of yeah. stuff. A lot of people don't like it. Um, the media doesn't like it. Everyone doesn't like it. Right. Um, I, I, need, I didn't know where to ask about him, so I'll ask about him now. But the rise of a certain New Yorker yeah. goes all through the decades that your book covers, the early, or the, the early 1980s, the late 1970s, to straight up to 2016. Yep. Um, you say, of all the things Abe Beam gave us, Donald Trump is the worst. Without weighing in on Donald Trump himself, how did Abe Beam's economic programs lead to Donald Trump becoming Donald Trump? Well, and Abe how Beam, did New York City make Donald Trump? Well, Abe Beam, it wasn't necessarily his economic programs. It was the fact that Trump's father was a big contributor to the Brooklyn political, the Brooklyn Democratic machine. And so, you know, Beam and, and, and Governor Kerry are both at Trump's marriage to Ivanka. Um, no, who's the, uh, Ivana. You know, so, I mean, the, the, the Trumps were in the Brooklyn political machine. And so when um, the Commodore Hotel uh, comes up and, and Penn Central wants to get rid of it, and, and basically Fred has the options, but, but Donald says he actually has the option to do something with it, kind of floats an idea which is pretty dodgy to redo with partners who are the Hyatts, the Pritzkers, to turn it into a Hyatt. And the, the city bites. A lot of people don't like the idea, but I will say this, at the end of the day, it was probably a positive. It was something that helped jumpstart 42nd Street and helped kind of provide an impetus for changes at the library and other businesses right around there, the Chrysler building. After that, um, I would say, the impact um, changes. I mean, when I started this book eight years ago, um, looking for people who really created change in the city, he was not someone. I mean, there was another change he did create was that the city was largely co-op buildings. And this is, you know, where you have a co-op board and people buy shares in the building. And then, you know, it's kind of complicated way of living. But then condos, don't need you can buy the space in the building but you don't need approval to get in and so 
this is a big deal because all the kind of in the 70s, the kind of jet setting international types, the Bianca Jaggers of the world, the rich buildings that they would like to live in didn't want them. And so there were very few places for those jet setters to actually live in New York. And so one of the things that Trump did was kind of begin a certain kind of globalization of New York by building condos that were comfortable. Trump Towers is a condo where, you know, Adnan Khashoggi and all these other kind of mysterious billionaires of their age were suddenly able to buy into New York. And creating buildings that weren't about communities or New Yorkers, but like waving in global millionaires was, was something that he really got the ball rolling on. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of following his ups and downs throughout this. Um, what he actually changes is not enormous, but what he sort of exemplifies is, you know, he, he's kind of a, a barometer of things. And by the end of the book, it's sort of just like watching a train coming at you on the rails is my sense. So it just gets closer and closer. And, you know, there we are. Would we have had the mayors of New York that we have had that we have had if we had done ranked choice voting all along? Would there have been Mayor Koch, Mayor Dinkins, Mayor Giuliani? Wow, this is, this is the last question you're asking me. And now this is like, this is the best question I've had in a while. Um, because we're just trying to figure out what the heck rate choice voting is going to give us now. So, <laughs> I mean, the first, you know, Koch against Cuomo was already a runoff, you know, so that would have been pretty fascinating to see. I think, you know, almost it kind of worked out that way. I'm talking as I'm thinking here, because one of the reasons that Koch wins the first time is because Percy Sutton and Wrangell basically throw Black Harlem's votes to Koch because Cuomo takes them for granted, basically. There's no sense he doesn't campaign. He makes no kinds of promises or accords with Harlem. And so there's a sense of the devil that you know, like Wrangell had served with Koch in the House, in, in Congress, in Washington, so he kind of knew him. And so they make, I think, a questionable deal, but they basically throw Harlem to him. So if you were actually doing ranked choice, Koch probably would have won in that way um, because, you know, he would have been for like second choice after all the Sutton votes or something like that. So going down the list after that, I mean, the thing is, for many years, certainly like the Giuliani years, it wasn't like the bench was really strong for the Democrats. You know, you had people like Ruth Messenger running. You had, you know, Mark Green. You didn't have an enormous depth of, of people. So I don't know how much it would have changed things. You know, I mean, I think, um, I, I think it's more interesting of what it would have happened up with de Blasio more than anyone else, because that was a kind of up for grabs election, as opposed to an incumbent running against one single challenger, which is how most of these other ones played out. We all know the Jay-Z song, the M empire state of mind. And there's this, uh, this vocal riff that goes through it. It's the greatest city in the world. Right. Uh, and I'm no singer. Is it fair? Is that a fair statement? Is New York the greatest city in the world? It is. You know, I think I can go out there and say that, you know, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to travel to some other places in the world, you know, and when they find out you're from New York, it is, there is a kind of fascinating magic to it. Everyone wants to go to New York. Everyone wants to see it, you know, and there is, it's just not 
just a combination of wealth because a lot of cities have wealth and big buildings. A lot of cities have big buildings, but there is still that sense of freedom, that it's still a place you come to make dreams come true, you know, that you, if you can make it here, you know, dare I go to Frank Sinatra, that there is something about making it in New York that is more different, you know, than making it in London or making it in Tokyo, that making it in New York still has a magic to it um, that hasn't been beat. So I'm going to say, yes, it is the greatest city. What did you discover about why it's irresistible, not only for the nostalgia it creates in people like me, but for a writer like you? You know, it, it is, it comes back to Holly White and New York, New York, New York. It is, it, you, you have to like people. If you're going to live in a city, you, you have to like people. You have to like the encounter with people, you know? And as I've grown up and kind of, you know, had my own personality of, move a little bit away from being an introvert, the more I enjoy people, the more I enjoy New York. The more I connect with people, the, the better living in New York is, you know, and you find over and over, you know, I'm sure you've been on the train when somebody gets lost, there's some tourist with a map and they're trying to figure out what, and the entire subway car decides to help them figure out how to get where they're going and give them recommendations on places to go and restaurants. And suddenly this entire car, like, is there, there's their personal guide. And they all have a different opinion. It's, it's right, exactly. But they're all, you know, I mean, but that's like, that's, that is the, the wonder of the place, right? Is that this supposedly scary, brutal place is literally just waiting to embrace you. And I think that is one of the magics of it. Thomas Dijah, author of New York, New York, New York, four decades of success, excess, and transformation. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Evan. Come home whenever you want. Will do. Certainly check out that book and his website, thomasdijah.com. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.